Good morning. It has been a while, hasn't it? As I've uh, listened to sermons over the years, mine included, I guess, I have uh, I've come to arrive at several categories. I actually have more categories of sermon than this, but I'll give you a sampling of the kinds of sermons that I think of in, in my mind. The first I call the come on clock sermon. That's the one where it's just an extended yawn and you just, oh, you're looking at your watch and you're saying, when is this going to end? One of my friends went to, uh, went to a church and he came back and he told me that the preacher spoke for 10 minutes and it was too long. That's one of those come on clock sermons. Then there's the feel good sermons, the serendipity Pollyanna types, where you dwell on those happy texts that everybody goes away just feeling good and warm and fuzzy. Then there's the feel-bad sermons. There's a number of churches that sort of capitalize on those. Sometimes the preacher will come up with a string of heart-breaking, heart-rending stories that leave you brokenhearted and tearful and usually motivated to do something out of guilt rather than grace. Then there's what I call just just plain bad sermons. <laughs> and brother, we've all done them. Uh, they're the ones that they just never clear the field. You might also think of those in terms of the, the lady who hollered out when the preacher was having trouble and she says from the back, Help him, Lord! <laughs> that's, the, that's the real bad sermons. There's the recycled sermon. There are some preachers that every week you're going to get the same message. You're going to get a different title and a different text, but when you get to the end, you're going to have that same old theme played over and over and over again. And the lightning bolt sermon. That's the one that every preacher, it's sort of the hole in one for, for preachers, you know, where you, you hit it just right and it, it sinks home and people really get the message and they go away challenged. And usually that's in a specific area. I'm sort of hoping that this is a watershed sermon. And that is a watershed sermon opens up a new way of thinking about something. And it's not just one specific area, but it's a way in which you begin to look generally at the scriptures and the Christian life. Hopefully that will be what happens today if we clear the ground. The purpose of this message is to talk about fatherhood, and I should I should begin by telling you that I was beginning to prepare this long before my father had his stroke a week ago. So this is not prompted or motivated uh, by by that. Um, while my thoughts are certainly uh, regarding my father at at this point in time. I've been prompted because I've, I've heard it over and over again in, in, in some kind of syrupy fatherhood sermons, especially on Father's Day. And the, the theme goes something like this. If someone does not have a father, and in particular if they don't have a godly father, then how will they ever be able to think about God as their father? Now, there's, a, there's an element of truth because the way in which we feel and think about our fathers probably does uh, tend to color the way in which we think about fatherhood and about God. But it seems to me that that's just too bottom up. There's too much emphasis on men and too little emphasis on God. And so I'd like to try and change our perspective on fatherhood from a bottom-up perspective to a top-down perspective. In other words, we ought to understand fatherhood by understanding God as our father. And then we will begin to evaluate and better understand a human fatherhood. And there certainly is a need, as I see it, in, in the church today for instruction in that way. I, I hear very little instruction on fathering that comes from teaching about God the Father. I see a lot of books selling by people who seemingly are experts in fathering, but not a lot of, of emphasis on the fatherhood of God in that regard. 
Well, why is it important to, to dwell on the subject of divine fatherhood and divine sonship? One reason is because of false teaching. Uh, when you think of the fatherhood of God, what comes to your mind? Generally speaking, the brotherhood of man. The fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man, and that's the old liberal mantra, mantra that, that's out there, and, and, and you, be, you just, I tense up. I hear the fatherhood of God, I think, oh no, here comes another one. And what that, what that theme is about is about an ishy, squishy father, who is about indulging people. And so God, as, as this uh, sort of generic, uh, loving person upstairs, is eager to indulge all of his creatures. And, and that's just not the picture of the Bible. And so I, I think we probably may avoid the subject simply because others have seemed to have claimed it as their exclusive territory. There's another form of false teaching which is rather distressing. In fact, I would say it's very distressing to me, and it, and it has arisen recently in the emergent church movement. And that is the teaching that the Bible's representation about God as Father and the Bible's representation about the relationship between God the Father and God the Son is a distorted picture of divine child abuse. Those are their words, not mine. Divine child abuse. The father has divinely abused the son. Now, I'm telling you, that just makes my blood begin to boil. And it's happening in churches that at least would profess to know and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Then there's the fact that the Bible gives us so little uh, illustration of the, the ideal father. Can you name one in the Bible? Can you think of anybody in the Bible who is an ideal father, the model that should help all of us to understand fatherhood better? I'm speaking of human fathers now. Uh, but wh who would you go to? Abraham? I don't think so. Uh, uh, Jacob? No, not there. David? Solomon? Anybody? Uh, it's interesting to me, too, that when you come to the apostles uh, and we think of people like Peter and John, we read absolutely nothing about their fatherly uh, function. And so the Bible simply does not give us human models of fatherhood that we are intended to follow. That is not to say that we should not be good examples of fathers, but it's simply to say that the Bible does not put our focus on men to understand the fatherhood of God. It puts the focus on God himself. And then I've, I've said the importance of thinking rightly about God. And, and I, I went back, I've heard this, this quotation before, but uh, let me read it to you. It's from chapter 1 of A.W. Tozier's book, The Knowledge of the Holy. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion, and man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself, and the most pretentious fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God, just as her most significant message is what she says about him or leaves unsaid. For her silence is often more eloquent than her speech. She can never escape the self-disclosure of her witness concerning God. What we think about God is absolutely crucial. And so when we think about God, we should think about God as our Father. And what we understand about the fatherhood of God should come from God himself and from his word. And that's what prompts me into this message this morning. 
Now, this is going to sound strange to you, but but the warnings in Deuteronomy chapter 4, not to mention other texts, about idolatry should give us pause. When you think about the emphasis of looking to men in order that you may see what God is like, there, there ought to be a little red light that comes on and a little bell that rings that says, danger, not that it's entirely bad, but there's a problem that could be there. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, God says through Moses to the people, when I spoke to you on the mountain, you did not see anything. That is, you did not see me in any human visible form. They saw smoke and they saw fire, but that wasn't God. That was manifestations that God was present. And then he goes on to say, if that is the case, then you ought to realize that in my very nature, I cannot be represented in a human, uh, f- in, in a natural, physical form like uh, a bull uh, as, as ancient religions did or some of these other things. Now, we know that in Jesus, God will be fully manifest and we will see him. But when you look from an Old Testament point of view, there was to be no representation and not even by means of those things which God had created. The moon, the stars, God's creative handiwork is not God. It may tell us something about him, but it is not God. I was thinking, trying to figure out an, an example of that. And, and uh, I thought about the moon. The moon reflects the light of the sun. And so there are things that we can learn about the sun, S-U-N, the things we can learn about the sun by observing and studying the moon. But the sun is not the moon. There is a difference. The moon is a reflection of the sun. And if we are going to understand the sun, we need to look to the sun and study the sun and not the moon as the exclusive source of our information. So all I'm saying is we need to be careful that we do not say to our children, do you want to know what God looks like? Look to your father. (laughs) Don't look to anything. Don't look to any man. Look to God himself. Don't make idols of things that God has made. Now my approach uh, to this uh, particular lesson I want to talk to you about divine fatherhood and sonship as it is unfolded in the pages of Scripture, I think progressively unfolded. Then I want to talk about some of the implications of that and the applications for us. And then I want to go just a level deeper and talk about our whole perspective and orientation and how the Word of God expects us to think about things in order to think straightly and live lives that are right. In other words, what I'm trying to say is the the wishy-washiness, the sentimentality about the teaching on fatherhood is really a reflection of of a deeper problem within evangelicalism, and, and we want to talk about that and its implications for us this morning as well. Okay, so let's talk about the progressive revelation and disclosure of fatherhood uh, in the Bible. Now, I did something uh, interesting, at least for me, to to sort of uh, underscore the progressive nature of the teaching of the Bible on fatherhood. And so I did a case-sensitive search on the word father. Okay, I know, I've left everybody at John now. But what that means is, you know, if you look up the word father, you get all the word father, whether it's capitalized or not. So I said to myself, I want to find how many instances in the Old Testament and the New there are of father with a capital F, meaning God. So there are, I'll tell you right now, there are 228 references to capital father in the New Testament. How many do you think there are in the old? Seven. Seven. Now, I hasten to say that there are other uh, places in the Old Testament where fatherhood and sonship is spoken of, 
But what that says to me is it's not until the New Testament that we really begin to see fatherhood played out, uh, and in particular because of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the first place we see fatherhood uh, really brought out is in God's relationship to the nation Israel. You remember that in, in Exodus chapter 4, uh, God says, Israel, uh, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Let my son go. And then in, in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 14, God says, you are sons of the Lord your God. So God established a relationship between Israel that was a father-son relationship in some sense. And, and there are all kinds of implications, but one of the beautiful ones is this. You can't ever stop being somebody's father. Is that not right? I mean, you, you know, you can, you may regret <laughs> the day <laughs> that, that this child was begotten, but that's still your child. And that's one of the great assurances for the nation Israel. God is their father means God has a plan and a purpose for his people that will always be there and will be fulfilled and followed through. There are other texts that you see there in uh, in Isaiah and Jeremiah, but but very few texts in the Old Testament in general terms. The second instance is the relationship of God to Israel's Davidic king. 2 Samuel chapter 14, uh, 7, verse 14, he says, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. So the father-son relationship is a very special, intimate relationship that takes place between Israel and God and now between Israel's king, David, and his descendants, so the Davidic dynasty. There is a relationship between that, and of course, you would expect that that will play through in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ when he comes as the son of David to rule over this uh, earth. By the way, Psalm 89 plays that out, uh, kind of expands that in, in a way that makes you look forward, at least makes me look forward to the Lord Jesus Christ as the ultimate fulfillment in that father-son relationship. Then you come to the father-son relationship in the book of Proverbs in the context of child training. My son this and, and my son that. And you see this father-son and the way in which a father deals with sons and the way in which uh, sons relate to their, their father. And you remember, of course, that text in Proverbs chapter 3, a text which the writer to the uh, Hebrews is going to take up in our text in, in Hebrews chapter uh, 12, 3, 11, and 12 in Proverbs. My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father, the son in whom he delights. So the disciplinary relationship is one that ought to be seen in the context of father and son. It is the outflow of fatherly love toward uh, that son. So it's, it's, it's a very significant thing. And in the book of Proverbs, it seems to me, and, and uh, it, this isn't my conclusion primarily or alone, because Dr. Walkie, when he was teaching Proverbs years ago, said, Proverbs is a book that talks about how you train up little princes and, and princesses because you are preparing people to rule. You are preparing people for, for rulership and leadership. So there is the father-son teaching of Proverbs picked up then later in Hebrews. And then there's the father-son relationship in relation to Israel's future in terms of their deliverance and salvation. Now, that passage in, in Malachi 4, 5, and 6 is, is frankly one that I have chewed on for a long time, and I am not going to tell you that I have got it all in my mind, but I would say this. Isn't it interesting that as the Old Testament closes, and these are the last words of the Old Testament, and they look forward to the coming of the Lord Jesus, that salvation is described in terms of the restoration of father-son relationship. 
By the way, it's interesting to me. I looked at the translations. When you, when you look at this, almost without exception, it will say, uh, as the New American Standard does, he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Now, I don't want to make a big thing of it, but the word that is used is a word that, that most often is translated son, not children. It can be translated, but twice as often it's translated son. And so I, I'm playing on that father-son relationship, not to exclude uh, uh, women in the equation, but to say that there is something about a father-son relationship that has implications for men and women, and, and it seems to me that the inference is here. Somehow the salvation that Christ will bring is going to restore something in the father-son relationship, something that has been lost through the fall and desperately needs renewing and, and restoring. Okay, so where am I in all this? Uh, in relationship to the coming of, of uh, the uh, Christ in the future and also now in the coming of our Lord. You see this father-son image now begin to blossom. It's interesting to me that, that Matthew has a significant amount of emphasis on, uh, on the, on father, capital F, and John even more. In the, in the, uh, New Testament, there are, I think, uh, a hundred, there are, in, uh, let me, uh, what did I say? There are 228 references to Father with a capital F. Half of those come in John's writings. Ninety-four of them come in the Gospel of John. I think that's significant, that when you read the Gospel of John, you get this strong father-son feel, do you not? John chapter 5. Jesus heals the man at the pool of, of, of Bethesda and he's brought forward for violating the Sabbath because he has worked on the Sabbath. And, and Jesus says, I do what my father does. And all of a sudden, it's like the shot out of the, the starting gun and it's off. And now the whole issue is the relationship between Jesus Christ and God the Father and what he has to say is is uh, totally unacceptable, especially to the to the Jewish religious leaders. But there's a huge emphasis, and Jesus will say, "I don't speak my own words. I don't speak on my own initiative. I speak those things that the Father gives me to say. I don't do things on my own initiative. I do those things that I see my Father doing." Isn't it interesting then that when our Lord is baptized? How does God represent his relationship to Jesus? This is my beloved son. Transfiguration, same thing. He identifies Jesus as the son. And I think that has, of course, links back to uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7 and, and other places in the Old Testament. Is it not also interesting that the temptation of our Lord Jesus is a temptation that is centered about his sonship? If you are the son of God, you know, then jump from the pinnacle of the temple, command these stone, stones to be made into bread, uh, and so on. The temptation is the temptation of Jesus as the son to act independently of his father. And the, and the point that Jesus repeatedly makes is, I, as the Son, must be obedient to the will of the Father. I will not act independently from what the Father has given me to do or to say. And then elsewhere in the New Testament, there's, of course, a number of texts. Matthew 26, the Garden of Gethsemane, our Lord submits to the will of the Father in, in uh, his... Uh, uh, death, arrest, trial, and death uh, by Jews and Romans together. Philippians chapter 2, our Lord Jesus submits himself again to the Father, even unto death. Interesting text, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 28. Remember that the whole course of history is God bringing the earth into subjection to Jesus the Son. Is that not right? 
He is going to be the one who reigns, and when he returns, he will, he will defeat his enemies, he will establish justice, and all of the kingdom will be given to him, and the final enemy is death, and then what happens? Unlike Satan, who is second in command in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, and says, I will be like the Most High, and tries to usurp the position of the Father, here is the Son who has been given authority by the Father, and it says He gives the kingdom back to the Father. So there is this perfect Father-Son relationship played out. But the text, I suppose, that are most important would be these texts in Hebrews chapter 5, where it talks about our Lord learning obedience. And it seems clear to me that you, we must say that, that in some sense our Lord as the perfect man experienced the discipline as a son that we would see that takes place also between God the Father and us as described in Hebrews chapter 12. So Hebrews chapter 12 is saying, if you believe in God and you believe in him as your father, then you need to understand a loving father disciplines his sons. And that discipline means suffering. It means hardship. It means adversity. And that discipline is not to be viewed as something where you say, what happened? Why, why is God mad at me? <laughs> like Job. But rather, you recognize God loves me. That is a manifestation of the love of a father toward his uh, son. I'll come back to that. But I want to talk about some practical uh, implications that I think come out of this. One of the prominent themes in Scripture when it talks about fatherhood, and I wish we had time to talk about all of them, one of the prominent themes is discipline. Is that not right? Go back to 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7, verse 14. God has promised a Davidic kingdom, a Davidic dynasty, and he says, when, your, when that king is disobedient, I will discipline him. And that is a manifestation of God's fatherly love and care. When you go to the book of Proverbs and you read about the father-son relationship, Try to read that book of Proverbs without, without coming upon the subject of discipline over and over and over again. It is, it is there. And uh, so I'm jumping to point two, but let me just go ahead and do it, and then I'll come back to, to point A, assuming leadership. Discipline. It seems to me that we need to understand discipline in two ways. The Old, uh, the Old Testament dis describes that discipline, and in Proverbs, we see it in particular, discipline that is corrective. Would you not agree? Uh, that, that, that the father is to bring upon the son in order to train him up, and this certainly applies across genders, but father-son being the, the imagery, it is to train that child up to come to know the Lord, to come to recognize sin, and to understand that sin has its consequences. In other words, the way in which a father relates to his children, and mothers too, is really very important about how that child will relate to God. So when our child misbehaves, if, if we fail to discipline that child, then we are giving an impression about God that somehow he does not care or he looks the other way when we sin. When we fail to bring about consequences, we give the impression there will be no consequences, that God somehow doesn't care and isn't interested. i got to tell you, folks, parents today are wimps. I'm just going to say it. Parents today are wimps. We wither, literally, because of the social pressure. We wither when somebody talks about spanking a child. And, and it is amazing to me, when you read the book of Proverbs, let me tell you something about child abuse. In the book of Proverbs, child abuse is not spanking. Let me say that differently. Childhood is not spanking. That's abuse. When a father fails to discipline his son, it says he hates his son. 
Love for a child brings consequences. If the consequences of sin is eternity in hell, then how dare we look at, at, at disobedience staring us in the face, shaking its fist at us, and somehow we're fearful to do something about it? Does it not just amaze you? Is there abuse? Is there child abuse? Yes. Is it wrong? Yes. Should it be dealt with? Yes. But isn't it amazing that in Proverbs, that is never mentioned once? That's because the writer of Proverbs understands the nature of man. The writer of Proverbs says, Discipline your child. He will not surely die. Boy, the kids, have you ever, man, we've been through five of them, so we know all about that, and we've watched some of yours. You just go for that spoon or whatever it is in the drawer. They start winding up the crying before it even hits them, right? Oh, they're dying of this. How can I say it more clearly? If we love our children as God loves us, we will discipline them. And that means dealing with disobedience in a painful way. It doesn't mean you always spank. It doesn't mean every child is dealt with in exactly the same way. And it certainly doesn't mean that you physically harm the child. It does mean pain. And, and I, I want to say, I want to say it as candidly as I can, because my kids are now beyond that, and you're not going to be able to look at them. Just got grandkids to look at now. There are a lot of parents in this church, and there are many parents in many churches who just don't have the guts to discipline their children. And I want to tell you, it is a misrepresentation of God when you don't. That's why it's serious. You are saying God doesn't care. Now, okay, I'm getting all excited to get off the soapbox. For the next part, and what I call proactive discipline, preparative discipline, when you look at what the father, how the father deals with his son, that is, God the Father deals with our Lord Jesus. He went through, and it says he went through life with tears and crying, and he cried out to the Father. Jesus was never once disciplined in a punitive way, was he? Because he never sinned. But he did endure hardship. I, I think that, that parenting today, according to our culture, a parent's job is to indulge their child. That a parent's job is to see to it that kids don't go without that, that computer game or whatever it is. Somehow that would be just a terrible thing to deprive that child of comfort, ease, pleasure, everything that child wants, that somehow we are obliged to do that. I want to say, when I read the, 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 the parable of the prodigal son, I now read it as the parable of the prodigal parent. We are building pig pens for our children. And we are encouraging them to live there, to squander. You know, we, for instance, I'm just going to pick an example, and I know I'm probably stomping on half a dozen toes or more, mowing the grass. Are we bribing our kids to mow the lawn by paying them so much that they wouldn't think of disobeying? Or do we say to our child, you're a member of this family. It's your job to mow the grass. Is there, is there never a time when a child is to do something because the parent asks them to do it, although it is unpleasant and even painful? I see John Hampton out there smiling. Man, he's more and more grass than anybody I know of. <laughs> Some things in life are painful, and sometimes parents need to orchestrate life for their child so that child actually persists and, and, and stays in the midst of something not pleasant because that's life. That's preparing them for life. I'm just saying, I don't see a lot of that today and I don't see it in the church and I'll tell you why. It's because our view of fatherhood and parenting comes from our culture, not from God's word. Why are we not teaching Proverbs these days? Why are we not practicing it? Why are kids uh, out of control? Because parents are not doing the things that God says we should do. Ah, now, see, 
Sonship is expressed. Oh, wait, no, I got to go back to A. I skipped that. I don't dare. Assuming leadership in the home and in the church. If it is, if anything is clear, fatherhood means leading. Does it not? Being the father of the family means leading. And, and it, it is amazing to me when I, when I look about and I look in the church, it is amazing to me how often spiritual leadership comes from the mother instead of the father. Don't get me wrong. Proverbs is clear that the mother has a leadership role as well, especially in support of the husband. But why is it that it's always the mother who seems to have to do all those spiritual things and fathers wimp out? Why is it that churches are are so lacking for leaders, men who stand up, stand out, and lead other people? I'm saying to you, if we understand fatherhood and we understand our role, then it's time we lead. And by the way, in 1 Timothy, a man should not lead in the church until he is first led in his home. That's what God's called us to do. We ought to do it. Sonship is expressed in submission. We move from fatherhood now to sonship because we're looking at the relationship that takes place within the Trinity between the Father and the Son. If it's the Father's task to lead, it's the Father's task to discipline, it's the Son's task to obey. And submission is the outflow of that, and you see that with Jesus throughout the Gospel of John. He will not embellish on God's words. He only speaks what God has given him to do. He will not press beyond the boundaries in his temptation uh, in seeking to do things that act independently of God. Submission is the outflow of that. And I'm not just saying the submission of women, although that is certainly in focus, but I am looking at the submission that we ought to have to divine authority that ought to characterize us in, in our lives. Okay, I'm really starting to get warmed up now, and that clock is moving right on. So let's see what we can do. The fatherhood, the the whole emphasis of father and fatherhood, I think, is to be top-down. It's to be God-centered, not man-centered. And I was thinking about that text in uh, Ephesians chapter 3. It's a puzzling text to me, but I still think it is critical. Verses 14 and 15 of Ephesians 3. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth derives its name. It seems to me that fatherhood originates with God. That's the way I take it. Fatherhood originates from God. Every other kind of fatherhood is derivative or expressive of that. And so this presents the proper orientation. Not how will people know about God as father unless fathers behave this way. But rather, we know how God behaves as our father and that's the way we as fathers ought to act as well. It's top down. And we are not left in the dark about God's fatherhood. We are left in the dark about bad fatherhood, or I should say about good fatherhood, because the examples are not there. We ought to look to God. He is the one who is our model and who is our pattern. Now, this may catch you a little off guard, and I guess I would have to admit it caught me off guard as well the importance of the Trinity in all of this. It's beginning to dawn on me that the relationship of the three persons of the Trinity is instructive for us, instructive for us in all of our human relationships. Look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, where God says, let us create man in our image. That's male and female, by the way, now that he's doing and let them rule. Now, there's a lot of discussion that goes on about what it means to be created in God's image. But I would say this. God created Adam and Eve, male and female, to somehow manifest leadership in the way in which they work together. I believe that husband-wife relationship ought to be a reflection of the nature of God, and in particular, the nature of God within the, the Trinity. I was, I was really surprised and, and impressed uh, by uh, Dr. Del T. 
attack it. If you've seen, and I know Kurt and Barbie are going through this with young adults in the Truth Project, but but he he this is a fascinating series that was sponsored by by Focus on the Family. Excellent series. Uh, as I remember, 10 one-hour-long uh, video instructions. And Del Tackett is in, a, is in a college classroom, and he starts to talk about submission. And he obviously knows these students well, and a number of them are married. And the camera kind of pans over, and it shows this young lady. And he, when he says submission, she just screws up her face. And he says, I saw that. I saw that. Submission is something you don't really like. This is really touchy. This is a subject that you're really going to bristle at, isn't it? And rather than just say, as he could, the Bible says that's the way it ought to be. He says, let's go back and rather than viewing submission through our culture, which hates it, let's look at submission through the relationship that takes place within the Trinity. Let's look at the relationship of Jesus Christ, the Son, to God the Father. And, and, and he then plays out how that submission works, and we see that, for instance, in the Gospel of John, the temptation of our Lord, and so on. And he says, when he gets through with that, isn't the relationship of Jesus to the Father beautiful? Isn't it beautiful? It is, isn't it? I mean, do you read the Gospel of John and say, yuck, that's awful. It's beautiful. And he says, that's what submission ought to look like. Here's the ideal for submission. It's Jesus in submission to the Father. Submission is a beautiful thing. And God says, I ought to do it. And I see it now, not in the light of the way my culture views it, but in the way in which God reflects it in his own being. And that's the way it ought to be. I think about John uh, chapter 17, twice in that text, he says, that they may be one as we are one. Who is he talking about? The Trinity. He's saying the church ought to be reflective in its relationships. It ought to be reflective of the relationship of the Godhead within the Trinity. So the Trinity becomes a pattern for us. And here's the interesting thing. I find it most instructive that, one, the Trinity is so difficult to understand. It is. It's not the easiest thing to grasp. But do you notice that there's a temptation on the part of evangelicals to sort of leave the Trinity out of the discussion packet? In other words, especially in trying to, to evangelize Muslims. Well, they this is a really hard thing for them, and so they really can't deal with that. So let's just set it aside. We'll get them saved, and then we'll drop it on them, you know, the fine print. Oh, by the way, here's the Trinity. It's not the way it works. In fact, when you look at the animosity of, of Islam to the Trinity, you find exactly the same animosity within Judaism to the Trinity. Do you not? When Jesus in John chapter 5 says, uh, I only do what the Father has given me to do. I only imitate the Father. The Father and I are one. Those words are anathema to them. Does Jesus tiptoe around the doctrine of the Trinity? Does he tiptoe around who he is? No, they say he makes himself out to be God. So he hangs this doctrine of the Trinity in front of them. And the fact is, people are forced to come to that conclusion because all the evidence points there. They have to see it. Or they, they disbelieve it. But it's there. It's there. It's compelling when the Spirit of God brings the truth and the evidence of Scripture uh, to their hearts and minds. So this whole thing about the Trinity is critical. And and I believe that, that it is something that we need to think about. The relationships that take place within the Trinity are instructive for us in terms of our relationships. So we ought to start from the top and work down. That sort of leads me to the next thing, which is our whole perspective. And and it was the thing that Del uh, Tackett kind of brought to my mind is he, he was saying, in effect, if you can change a person's perspective... You can change the way in which they will deal with the truth of Scripture. 
So if you warp somebody's perspective, then when they come to the scriptures, they're already predisposed in a certain direction. And what I would say is this. I, I've been inclined in my years of teaching to talk about the, the commands of scripture. The, let's call them the precepts. Now, that's certainly biblical. Jesus says, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. We ought to teach the commands. And then, and then I've, I've focused in, in my life and ministry on the principles of Scripture and, and how those principles uh, will be applied. Everything in the church, Paul says, is to be done decently and in an orderly way. That has all kinds of implications, that principle, in terms of how it plays out. Two people don't speak at the same time. Two or nobody than three people will, will prophesy or speak in tongues and so on. Orderliness is a principle that governs. But what I want to say is the Bible is also there to, go, to shape our perspective. And I'm trying to tell you that we, I think, fail in having a God-based perspective. That we think about things from God's point of view. If I had time, I would walk through Job. I'm going to just say a couple things about Job, and then I'll quit. Job never really knows what happens, does he? He never understands why he lost all of his children. Doesn't understand it. We know because of chapters 1 and 2. And Job finally gets kind of huffy about it, and he has his hands on his hips, and he's starting to ask God questions, and all of a sudden Job's the prosecutor, and Jesus is on the, def- is, is the defense, or the defendant. And God says to him, remember in chapter 38, just who do you think you are, partner? Uh, I thought when I created this place, you weren't around. And, and how do you comprehend so well all of these things that I have done in creation? Job comes to understand one thing. God is sovereign. And that's all he needs to know. Because that's the one in whom he trusts. God is in control for everything that comes into his life. He didn't understand in his lifetime why he had to suffer the losses he did. But he understood this. God is in control. That is the most comforting truth that one could get their hands on. In other words, he has to start seeing things from a divine perspective. Uh, Jacob, all these things are against me, he says. He wrongly concludes Joseph is dead, certainly led to that conclusion by the evidence of the brothers and the bloody garments. Concludes that now his sons are being ripped from his loving hands, and the reality is God was working those things in his life to deliver him, not destroy him. It's a divine perspective. Asaph looks about and he sees his difficulties and his adversity and his suffering, and he sees the prosperity of the wicked, and he says, something's wrong with this until he comes to the sanctuary of God. Now he sees things from God's perspective. And I'm saying to you, we need to become people with a top-down perspective. We need to be people who are not looking at God and Scripture through the eyes of our culture because they're blind. We need to be looking at life through God's eyes, and the Bible does that for us over and over again. So let me end by just telling you two particular ways in which God-centeredness may be... Uh, developed in our lives. One is the meeting of the church. You know, every time I, I preach, I always watch, and even other people preach, I watch be- for the correlation between what's happened independently of me in the Lord's Supper and what happens in the preaching hour. What was the emphasis? What would you say is the emphasis in terms of this morning? Christ alone. Through the blood of Christ alone, wasn't it? It's all about God. It's not about me. That's what, that's what this message is about. It isn't just our salvation that's all about Him. It's everything that's all about Him. Being a father is about God. Living our life day to day is about God and how that bears upon us in a day-to-day practical way. We must know Him better. And what better place and what better way to do it than every week to be reminded it's about Him, not about us. Some people think that's boring. Some people think it ought to be more about what's about me. Read the, 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 the little cute little slogans in front of churches. It's all about you, partner. 
Well, it isn't all about you. It's about Him. And when you come to this church or any church that preaches His Word, we ought to be hearing about Him. And yes, it relates to us, but it's not all about us. All things are of Him and through Him and to Him. It's God who is the center of our universe, not man. And the Word of God. The Word of God gives us that... Uh, God-centeredness. I, I, this is a book some of you may have never seen it before. J.I. Packer wrote it. It was 18, 1984. Hot Tub Religion. Boy, if it was true in, in, in 1984, whoo, is it true today? Listen to what he says. What do we find when we read the Bible as a single unified whole with our minds alert to observe its real focus? I guess that means more than one or two verses a day. We find just this. The Bible is not primarily about man at all. Its subject is God. He, if the phrase may be allowed, that's interesting, is the chief actor in the drama, the hero of the story. The Bible is a factual survey of his work in this world, past, present, and future, with explanatory comments from prophets, psalmists, wise men, and apostles. Its main theme is not human salvation, but the work of God, vindicating his purposes and glorifying himself in a sinful and disordered cosmos. Friends, if you want a God-centered view, you will only get it in God's Word. And lots of doses of it. Not little eeny, teeny, little dabble, do you things. Massive doses that tell us it's about Him. Our parenting is about Him. Our marriages are about Him. Our daily life is about Him. Our worship is about Him. Our evangelism is about Him. It's all about Him. That's what God has called us to do. You may be here this morning and you're wondering, what in the world is all of this? Maybe you've got another category for my sermon called nuttier than a fruitcake sermons. (laughs) The gospel is a simple story about man in desperate need. And that need cannot be met in any other way by, by, by human efforts, by anything we do, It can only be met by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the perfect Son, who bore the punishment for our sins and for all who believe in Him as Savior, the assurance of the forgiveness of sins and of eternal life. That's what it's all about. It begins there. And once you begin there, all of life gets turned upside down. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17 and following, you did not learn Christ in this way. In other words, when you came to faith in Jesus Christ, you came to an absolute inversion. That's why we have to have a renewing of our minds, Romans 12, 1 and 2. We have to come to think absolutely differently because now our perspective is a divine perspective rather than a human one. And it enables us to see life and live life in a way that pleases him. Father, we thank you for your word. Help us as fathers to reflect uh, who you are. Help us as as believers uh, in a body with diversity yet to reflect the unity of the relationship that exists within the Trinity. Help us to have a divine orientation, a divine perspective. Help us to see things from your point of view. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.